Looking at the economics of the food supply chain, Ed Webb and Jason French of the podcast Louisiana Global Gumbo discuss the issues from multiple points of view. Whether you are a producer, an importer or exporter, or a consumer, you'll be interested. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Ed Webb and Jason French, who are the hosts of Louisiana Global Gumbo. Ed is the CEO of the World Trade Center in New Orleans, and besides managing the organization, obviously promotes international trade. And Jason is the CEO of French Strategic Partners, an international business consultancy. Welcome, Ed. Welcome, Jason. Glad Glad to have you here. Thanks (laughs) for having us, Liz. So since we are both um, all uh, podcasters now, I wanted to ask you, how you decided to do a podcast of Louisiana Global Gumbo. How'd you get started? Well, Jason, let me jump in really quick. Jason is a creative and had the mindset of getting greater reach in the state and and working with LED, which is Louisiana Economic Development. We got some ideas from those folks, from Jessica Stevenson and Larry Collins about one on a podcast. Well, I knew nothing about them at that point. I looked over at Jason. He goes, let me run with it. So Jason, what'd you do? Yeah, self-taught in the last four or five months, began from scratch. We, we produce on GarageBand and Apple, uh, bought the equipment on Amazon and really have watched a lot of YouTube tutorials. But I think the reason why we started it was trying to find an effective outlet to communicate with our membership. I think we've got a 1500 members ed and and we were looking for a way to creatively communicate on the issues that they cared about and this provides a great platform to do that and as a, it's difficult to sometimes bring uh, uh, you know a few hundred people together to to listen to a speaker in a hotel ballroom but this was a way to share information that was timely without having to to do that and I, I think it's it's been a success for us so far it has been and J- that number that Jason just gave you the figure note includes both the investors and our clients that we work with on a day in and day out basis. So we've got a, a bigger universe of, of a blend of both the actual membership itself. But that being said, he's spot on. We wanted to get a way to, or find a way to speak to these people. And think about it, Jason, we couldn't get to them during the pandemic. So it was a great tool for us to say, hey, we've got a story to tell. Well, of course, this is all coming from New Orleans, and New Orleans is a great food city, and we've always been an international city. So tell me a little bit about how you're blending in your podcast all of the international food issues that affect the city. Jason? So our, our, our first episode, actually, um, we're, we're trying to capture all the international elements of Louisiana, and obviously food is a key piece of that. We started our first episode with the Agriculture Commissioner, uh, Mike Strain, 
um, to really just look at it from a trade standpoint. How much food are we providing to the world? And, you know, I think that was illuminating for both Ed and I to realize that 70% of the grain that America exports comes from Louisiana. That's substantial. And, and that's from a trade aspect. But we're also we've got a couple episodes planned in the future to really talk about tourism. We talked with Michael Heck from New Orleans about the impact of tourism and the restaurants and, and all the things that about New Orleans that attracts people from around the world to that city. Uh, but we're going to be talking, really diving into the tourism and service industry, particularly in New Orleans, and talking about that on an episode here in a few weeks. So as you said, there, there's no way to talk about Louisiana's reach to the world without talking about the, its food, and particularly the food in, in New Orleans. I like that response, Jason. Let's say Liz really quick, if um, what Jason just said, if, um, um, if rock is the heart of um, Cleveland, then food is the heart of New Orleans. So... Yes, and I think it's so much easier to to imagine it than music, because even though I think we are really a place where music is part of our soul and we don't just play other people's music, we create our own music. Um, there's something about food that um, causes a kind of exchange because everybody eats, whether you listen to music or play music or whatever, that might be more variable, but every, every single person eats and it makes people have to come to New Orleans. For example, if we're importing into the city, that means that other people come here and they learn about us and eat at our tables. And it's just really, I, I think, really exciting to look at the history of the city and see how long we've been importing coffee and all of the, the things that bring people together. If you read uh, Mark Twain and some of his comments about the, the French market and how international it always was and all of that, I, and I don't think we've ever stopped being that way. It's interesting you make that comment because I was thinking out loud just when I first arrived and I arrived here about two and a half years ago. And I remember thinking, can the food really be that phenomenal? And Liz, I gained 10 pounds my first month. <laughs> it is, and that was not grief. It was our not anxiety. It was just <laughs> flat out eating. And uh, Mr. French here didn't give me the warning. He had been a reform for many, many years, but it's a, uh, it's definitely the food. And one thing that Jason and I have discovered too, at least we discovered daily, you mentioned the diversity and the mix of cultures here. There are so many blends of people in this community uh, from all over the world, you know, not just the French and the Spanish, but it's a true melting pot. And Jason, jump in here because one thing we discovered as we've spoken to the, our various guests, and for example, he mentioned Mike Strain, Commissioner Strain, that we feed the world. Uh, it's amazing how our food is recognized many times more over than our energy. Jason, don't cringe at that comment because you're an energy guy. I know that. So. <laughs> well, just in response to one of the things you said, Liz, about, you know, our, the food kind of being the recognizable part of the culture and what brings folks in, I just wanted to share a, a quick story. I actually came to Louisiana for the first time in 2010 not something I like to advertise 12 years later, but I came as part of, I was the um, fairly senior with public affairs and government affairs for BP during the Deepwater Horizon spill. Oh, wow. And that was my introduction to Louisiana. I'd been working in Oklahoma and 
and won't bore you with all the details, but I ended up in Grand Isle, Louisiana, which really was ground zero for the spill. And it's where all the networks were broadcasting the nightly news. And, um, you know, being the face of BP in that community was a challenge. Um, you know, I had uh, a couple times I had death threats. I had protesters. I traveled with security at times. But one of the things we had a town hall, one of my first town halls that I did with 100 people and journalists from all over the world at the back of the room. And it just wasn't terribly productive. I wasn't able to address what people wanted to talk about, wasn't able to address people's problems that they were actually having as a result of the oil spill and, and came away from that frustrated that we hadn't been able to help people. And I came up with the idea of let's sit down and with 10 or 15 people at a time in their homes, at their houses, with their neighbors, and have a have a local dish, have drinks, have food. Uh, we ended up having a crawfish boil that the mayor of Grand Isle and about 20 people came to, and they got to teach me how to eat crawfish. <laughs> and you know that it established a bond. It established a bond, and we spent we spent an hour and a half, two hours eating, having drinks together. And then I started to speak. And at that point, we had made this human connection over Louisiana food, where the anger that they had that was entirely justifiable, um, had subsided to a degree where we were very productive. And I think every, all 20 of the people who attended that walked away with answers to the things they needed answers to. And then we started to duplicate that. And that started in Louisiana. But the interesting thing is that model that we used in Grand Isle then spread across the Gulf Coast, from South Texas to Florida, that's how BP started communicating, and it was over food, and that started in Louisiana over some crawfish when we saw the success of that model. And so when you talk about food being the introduction to Louisiana, I just wanted to share that story because it was a, it was a time where food was not only an introduction, but an incredibly uh, productive connection between people. That's a great point. Yeah. And, and I think people, um, people have complained in uh in in history about the the fact that people who come in to louisiana and to new orleans in particular but certainly all of louisiana this is probably true it's just more people might come to new orleans and they they are trying to do business and they call on various businesses in in new orleans and the people in new orleans expect oh we'll drink coffee together or we'll do this together or whatever. And these people just want to come in and just start doing business. And if you go back far enough, it's the Americans who do that. And the people in who are from New Orleans, who call all these new people coming down in the beginning of the 19th century after the, the Louisiana Purchase. And they're talking about all these Americans come down and they don't want to have a cup of coffee. They think it's a waste of time to have a cup of coffee with people or whatever. And it's an interesting kind of dichotomy about just having business. And basically, Jason, that's what you're saying. You try to just address the issue and people weren't ready to address the issue because they had to size you up first. And one of the ways to do that is over food. Yeah, we had, we, we had to, we had to break bread together. The fun, Funniest part of that story that I left out, they were teaching me to eat crawfish and, and this, this, uh, this older, older shrimper, it, he's showing me how to break them open. He's like, and then the first thing you want to do is grab that head and just suck on that head. 
And so I'm doing exactly what he tells me. And his wife comes up behind him and smacks him in the back of the head and says, don't do that to that boy. Show him how to eat him the way you show a first timer how to eat. Them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got to make a comment about that. But Jason just said, because you know, crawfish is a, obviously a delicacy here. And I, there's a great quote about Louisiana food. And I sent you some fun quotes a while back. I hope you enjoyed those quotes. I but did, yes. Jason, you'll love this one. It says that, um, and it kind of ties into what Jason just shared. Louisiana has the best food on the planet if you really don't ask about too much of what you're eating. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think that's a great quote. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. So what has the port done and how are we basically accommodating all the problems that people are having right now, not only because of Ukraine, but just because of the supply issues created by COVID and all of the other things that the world is facing right now. What are we doing about that in Louisiana to address those issues and make sure that the people in Louisiana, whether they're farmers or producers or whatever, are, are not taking you know, the short end of the stick? You mentioned the ports very quickly. The ports had to pivot because obviously the supply chain issues that continue, we had a, a meeting yesterday with our transportation committee with Billy App, and we're concerned with the lack of containers. We've got a client who's looking for 80 containers for rice, which is one of our largest exports, mm-hmm. and he, had, he could secure 20. He needs 80, and oh. that's yeah. a challenge. So there's an all-out uh, request to other ports and the ports are working together. Wouldn't you agree, Jason, trying to help each other out in this period of time to secure uh, the, the proper equipment and the other issue to his labor issues. But the ports are working together to try to resolve that issue, to make sure they can get the equipment they need, the containers they need. Um, obviously, we're blessed as a state, and this is something that Jason covers a lot in his, his world, but the fact we have great highways here and great rail systems get the food or the product back and forth. Yeah, we're, 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 we are food rich and energy rich as a state and a country, uh, but so much of it comes through Louisiana, which is part of what our podcast is doing is trying to tell that story. Hey, rest of the United States, you ought to look down here at this state that's doing so much for the country and the world. You know, I, I, going back to our, our conversation with Commissioner Strain, uh, the agriculture commissioner, he talked about having really been trying to get policymakers to focus on the potential for supply chain issues and the really it's not just the the things that we have delivered by Amazon this real-time inventorying has become a problem in agriculture and food as well and that it, it posed a risk if there was hiccups in the supply chain so I know his office has been uh, proactive and trying to work with the ports and producers to make sure that the the means are there to, to get products to market uh, and then also, he spent, if you, if you happen to listen to that episode, uh, either talked about a lot of the things that they're trying to do to become more efficient in both the, the, the delivery of crops, uh, in the production of crops and the delivery of crops. So it's, it is certainly, the food is, is, has not been spared from the, the, the global crises that we're facing, but we are fortunate to be food rich here. And it is a matter of what we can ship to the world and, and, and you know, some of the challenges that come along that, but a lot of people are working to address it. And so are, are, are the containers stockpiled in other places where they can't come back here? How does the 
this kind of bottleneck happen where things aren't working and you know, I know it's not all truckers. Those are the things that we read about or see about on television, but I know that that's just one little teeny piece of the, of the whole puzzle. I know I, I wrote a book that I finally got a copy of the book just yesterday and it's uh, uh, over a month late and it was because there wasn't paper. And so the printers couldn't print because they were waiting for the paper deliveries. And it had nothing to do with actual shipping or anything like that. So my book is called Nonna's Creole Italian Table. And it's all about the Sicilians who came to, to Southern Louisiana. And it's not something you have to eat and you can certainly live without this book. But nevertheless, I have been waiting for it. So on a personal basis, it's been really uh, something that's affected me. And um, I, I just wondered whether you can kind of decipher where some of the issues are to try to undo them, or how are you addressing that? Because you're we'll, addressing it, discussing it, but what are you actually talking about? Jason will have some good input here, but my, my thinking initially is it, it all began for a lot of cases with the pandemic, because what happens, that industry is still labor intensive, and when you could not get the stewardors, the people to work the docks, and to drive the trucks, Obviously, there's backup, and we all read about the um, the vessels, you know, uh, floating outside of the harbors of California that couldn't be unloaded, and that's starting has a domino effect. And then what happens? You have these empty cargo containers that uh, either were resting on those craft or sitting in in China that we couldn't get back and forth because China is still more bigger players on, on delivery of um, of importing Chinese product into the U.S. market, but. From our research, it really did begin with the, the labor issues where we couldn't get, you know, product moved off and on. And it just kept backlogging, backlogging, backlogging. Now, I think everything Ed said is right. It's, it, it is so interconnected. Liz, going to your story about the paper, um, my kids, turning it back to food, I, I'm not a great cook, but there, there's one, there are two things I make that the kids love. I make catfish, and then I make what they call weekend breakfast, which is I make basically every biscuits, gravy, everything you can think of, but I don't do biscuits from scratch. I do the, the you know, the Pillsbury rolls that you right. get in the grocery store. Well, for three months, and just now you're starting to find them back on the shelves, and you can't find the, necessarily the type that I like that the kids like, uh -huh. because and I did a little bit of research. The sleeve that they come in, that sleeve that you pop, that cardboard sleeve with the two metal ends that you pop, weren't being manufactured because they had a labor shortage at the facility that makes the sleeve. So you couldn't even get generic brand biscuits. It wasn't just the Pillsbury biscuits. You couldn't get these biscuits because the containers. And it, that is, you know, for me, that shows an example of the interconnectedness of our supply chain. When right. containers are not moving one direction, you can't load them to move the other direction. Right. Um, when you have a labor shortage among stevedores or among uh, and, and anything that stops, if those containers with if the containers that move the biscuit containers aren't moving, then you can't load that container on the other side to send goods back. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has recent world events have given people a really drastic tutorial in the global supply chain and global energy markets and things that people didn't think about and took for granted. They're starting to have to think, how do these things work and how sensitive the supply chain is to disruption, I think is something that 
people were not aware of two years ago. A lot of people still aren't, but they're becoming aware. My, yeah, my kids are starting to understand why they can't have weekend breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> on a bigger scale, Jason's right on target with what he's saying there. And there's a term that we, we grew up on uh, called just-in-time inventory management. Uh-huh. And it's something we all studied in college and how effective it was for the uh, Japanese uh, manufacturing companies. And the U.S. adopted that model, and it was quite profitable to avoid heavy stockpile of, you know, in your warehouse. Basically, your warehouse was, wasn't empty, but it only had those things you needed. Right. Well, guess what? Jason's right. This whole situation has turned it upside down. And they're realizing that while just-in-time might work with some commodities, it doesn't work for everything. Right. So we are rethinking and being a little more aligning to how the economy is going to impact that sector versus that sector now. So we're going to see some quite a few changes in the industry. So I'd also like to talk a little bit about what people don't know about what we do in Louisiana. For example, we have Domino Sugar here. There's a huge, I mean, the, the largest North American refinery is is right here on the river in Araby. And we have Folgers, for example, shipping coffee all over the place. They actually closed their plant in Kansas City and moved all their operations here. And not only do they do Folgers, but they also co-pack other brands and things. I don't think people really know about all of these important things. I remember after Hurricane Katrina, when there was that crazy talk about not helping to rebuild New Orleans, where the feds were not, uh, oh, I look at your face saying, what are you talking about? There was talk <laughs> about not rebuilding New Orleans and saying, what does New Orleans do? What stupid people built below sea level, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And so why should we invest in rebuilding? Uh, I mean, they got over that. And of course, once it became so clear that the problems with some of the, what they call levees, which are really the walls of canals that built by the Corps of Engineers had been already targeted for maintenance and had been line item vetoed for years and years. And that's what caused all of the problems. Um, They kind of had to back up a little bit and say, oh, well, maybe it was, we did have something to do with it. Okay. So that's my little political statement there about (laughs) Katrina. But what, what, amazed me is how the country as a whole, which talks about our food, our music, all of that sort of thing, does not ever understand how important our sugar production is to the whole country and the whole economy. Um, You know, one of the things that we do with that sugar is use it in medicines to make the pill coverings and coatings and things like that. And if you don't have the, uh, the coating, then you have no medicine. So it affects pharmaceuticals. It affects all kinds of things. And no one knew about how important coffee is here and what right. it means to the whole country. And I wonder about our um, talking about you know food and eating here, which is part of the experience of being here, but we don't sort of tout the rest of it about how yes, all of that is true and it's wonderful. But you know we contribute a lot of rice to beer making in in the United States, and we um, we really have an impact on the way the rest of the country eats, and we almost never 
um, we almost never get get credit uh, credit for it. I, that's not exactly the way to to put it, but I think you know what I mean. No you one knows stop. about it. You just stopped there. You just got my heart. You said mentioned beer. I didn't know you were a beer drinker, Liz. So we, <laughs> But certainly, you mentioned sugar. Sugar canes are our number one export. And people look at sugar and think, well, what's the real value there? And, you know, as, as a parent and, and all of us with our own kids, I'm like, you know, you can't have sugar. You can't have sugar. But again, you mentioned the applications there. Uh, a coffee. You know, one of our biggest clients is, is Westfield and also uh, PJs. And you look at the numbers of product they push into the uh, consumer market. It's amazing how many it's consumed, not just in Louisiana, but also outside the state and in the region. But you mentioned too about the, the importance of the state. And I want Jason to address this because he's taught me some few things. But we look at the, the fact that we're a petroleum or oil state. People think, well, oil's dirty. It's this. Jason, elaborate there. What happens to what fuel we create? What it has derivatives of the LNG and the like? Well, so, yeah, on, on the energy space, we are, well, to your greater point, Liz, part of the reason why we started our podcast and working with LED is exactly what you just described. Folks don't appreciate the importance of New Orleans and Louisiana around the country and the world. I think it is, um, I don't know where why that is the case, but if Louisiana were to turn off its energy production tomorrow, it would cripple the country, it would make the situation in Europe exponentially worse. Uh, that's ongoing right now, because we truly are powering the world right now with our LNG, Louisiana, if it were its own country would be the third largest producer of natural gas in the world. If it was its own country. Um, when you think about the importance of what that means to Germany and to all of our allies in Europe, particularly during this time of war, that's substantial. When I was kind of, I was remembering, I was, I was remembering those comments after Katrina. Why do people live there? What, why do we need to rebuild? And it's, it's just a, that just is, is such a, I don't know if, I'm trying to use a diplomatic word, but the, the ignorance that comes with that statement. And, you know, New Orleans began with trade. New Orleans will always exist because of trade. You're right. The food, the culture, the music, the tourism, the things that bring us to visit and go through the French Quarter and, and those things are there and they're wonderful. But New Orleans is a city based on trade, based on that river. It's near the mouth of the Mississippi and it's always going to be there and it's always going to exist around trade. So yes, sugar, rice, all of those things. But energy, the episode we did last week, I had no idea that and now I'm in the business of knowing the things that Louisiana is supposed to be great and known for. Every rocket that NASA has sent into space has been built in Louisiana. Right. Mm -hmm. I Amazing. didn't know that. And I, most, I think most Louisianans don't know that. I, I've mentioned that to several people since I learned it last week when we recorded. And they're like, really? <laughs> so we've got to do better as a state promoting all the great things we do. Uh -huh. uh, and, I, and I hope that should, should we ever be hit by a Katrina type hurricane again, that, that those ignorant statements about not rebuilding or why is New Orleans so important, we've got to start educating people so that those things are never repeated. Right. You know, I think we get overshadowed sometimes, just to jump in on this conversation really quick, about the fact that we, we are a, a fun state. We have great we have great food, we have great people. But if you drill down beyond that, and we all love to have fun, God knows I love to have fun. But back to Jason's point, if you look at what we're doing in the state, this is an incredible state. 
And we get some great leadership in Baton Rouge who, who recognize that. And they're trying to change that whole perception of what is Louisiana. We don't want to lose that fun piece of the tourism. We don't want to lose the, the, that food and that music is so important to us. But as we work in economic development and try to bring businesses here to keep the businesses we have, we just read where Bomber Foods, who is the maker of Crystal, my, my favorite, next to Tabasco. They just signed another long-term lease with the Port of South Louisiana. That's a great thing because we don't want to lose that company. Mm -hmm. But people don't realize, back to Jason's point, that there's so much, we're so much more complex than just that what you perhaps see in New Orleans or, or in Baton Rouge or in Streetport. It's a, it's, it's a mixture of a lot of good things that if we really knew how the impact on global economy, people would be amazed by it. Jason's point about the Mishu plant and the um, uh, rockets they build there. I didn't know that. I had no clue. It's amazing. Yes. I think, like for example, with coffee, if you talk to people about coffee, they're going to think they're going to think Seattle because they have done so much to promote themselves. And the fact that the coffee is coming through here has done that since the, the late 17th century. It's like, really? You're worried about Seattle? You know? It's and, all branding. Um, and and I I don't know. It's very frustrating to me how we should have more attention put on that. Not just among business people who are working together or whatever, but just as as much promotion as we do about come visit and eat the food and listen to the music and see the beautiful architecture. There should be that much promotion about our business and our business acumen our strategic position at the bottom of the river, you know, all of that kind of thing. So that's a good point. And Jason mentioned earlier, and Jason did a wonderful interview with Commissioner Strain. It's our first interview. And if you've not spoken to him, and I think Jason would second this, he is an encyclopedia of all the great things of the state dealing with the agricultural component. Wouldn't you agree with that, Jason? Oh, absolutely. There was, there was a reason he was our first guest. <laughs> so I will, I will tell you that he is so visionary that when the Southern Food and Beverage Museum was an idea and we first opened and nobody knew what a food museum was, he came and gave the opening speech because you he, you know, um, he was that visionary. He said, this is, this is important. So yes, I know him and uh, I agree with you. I think that he is definitely a visionary person. Yeah. So I really want to thank you. Does anybody have anything in particular you want to say, like tell us a little bit more about your, uh, your podcast, how people can listen to it or anything like that? Jason? The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, you can go to www.louisianaglobalgumbo.com to listen to it through a browser. Uh, trying to make it easy for anybody to access it. It, again, it really is trying to tell some of those stories that we've talked about, both from food, space, energy, all the things that Louisiana is doing. I don't know what the larger answer is. I think there's going to have to be a significant marketing campaign nationally to start convincing people of how important Louisiana truly is to, to the economy. But we're trying to do our little piece through the podcast. So that's, that's my, my quick pitch for the podcast. And Liz, three things really quick that I want to say. First of all, is that Jason and I are both from Kentucky. 
And obviously, when we invite folks to our house, we don't do food. Jason, bite your lip here. We share bourbon. (laughs) (laughs) And and second thing, I'm going to harass Mr. Mr. French because we're both Kentucky. And Kentuckians do not eat canned biscuits. I don't know where he got that. I'm amazed about that. But then again, he's a great father. I've seen him with his kid. And the, and the last thing for you that, uh, that Jason mentioned that's, that I think is brilliant about the, the food process or the food idea that he had when he first got here with his, uh, his, his project, a major project. So th- that would be Liz. Jason, I look forward to you inviting us to your house to have dinner. So (laughs) I take, I I take that seriously. Okay. (laughs) So thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Both Jason and this is really great. And everyone should listen to this podcast because you will learn a whole lot. Thanks so much. Thank you, Liz. Thanks for listening to tip of the tongue, part of the nitty grits network of the Southern food and beverage museum in new Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.